1: Health podcasts and I have Dr. Ellen Berg. Uh, she's the founder of a company called Alto Predict. So, uh, Ellen, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Great. How are you? Good. Good. Tell me about uh, Alto Predict. What's the premise of the company?
2: Yeah. So, Alto Predict is a data science company founded to promote adoption of non animal alternatives for product safety testing. It's focused hmm. specifically on human in vitro technologies.
1: Okay. um, What are human in vitro technologies? (laughs) Great question.
2: Um, Primary cell-based assays, organs on a chip, organoids, bioprinted Mm. tissues, microphysiological systems, stem cell-based assays, all in vitro human-based assays. The idea is to use these. In place of animals for testing for safety
1: yeah I, I just have the, you know I'm not on the inside of this I just have the general feeling that it seems like less animals are being used for testing and I think the public it's just my guess the public feels like everything's okay now and animals aren't used very much or you know if they are used it's just laboratory mice which I guess not a lot of people okay. seem to care about but is that true or what you know what, what do you see yeah no.
2: <laughs> no it's not true <laughs>
1: that's what okay. I wanted to know It's an urban myth yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, so the reality is despite all of these innovative advances uh in these uh, in these methods and and so many different platforms that have been developed over the last 10-15 years, there's a tremendous lag in adoption by product developers to use these systems. The reason is uh, that reason, multiple reasons. They're um uh Many, many options, right, many different platforms, crowded market, many different stakeholders are involved in acceptance of these assays and replacement of animals, Um, and the data from in vitro assays, it's complicated. The analysis isn't trivial, and the validation data from these, these new platforms is either very limited or very hard to access. We often see, you know, publications where the data are in supplemental table four, <laughs> in an mm, Excel okay. table, and so they're not. It's not easy to for the people who need to uh, agree to use these to gain confidence in their use. So our okay. idea is to. Um, uh, provide uh, to get, build a platform that provides easy access to this validation data. So we're going to collect it and integrate it, along with building specialized analytics and data visualization tools. Sort of bring business intelligence <laughs> analysis to this complicated uh, scientific data.
1: All right. Well, uh, another misnomer or you know misconception. In vitro. You know, I think of in vitro fertilization. That doesn't mean in the body. I think in vivo is inside a human body or inside a a, an organism's body. But what's in vitro? That's correct. Outside in a dish. Yeah,
2: outside in a dish. Exactly. Exactly. And the um, you know the challenge is how do you model in vivo biology, complicated in vivo biology in vitro? But you know the technologies are developing. We're we're able to culture. Many different cell types now, and uh, from stem cells induce the differentiation into things like neurons that you can't really get human donors to volunteer their neurons for testing right so um, one thing that hasn't been appreciated is that you know toxicology safety testing is just a very conservative discipline and people are very cautious to adopt new things unless they're really sure it's going to be better so we need to right. apply now data science to pull together all the data to evaluate these platforms and and test them uh, really well and and determine whether or not they're predictive and whatever application uh, product
1: developers need well what's the assumption that animal models are predictive or they're just uh, some points of data along the path towards a clinical trial, or what's the common perception right now?
2: Yeah, it's, it's legacy. You know, the concept many, many years ago was, well, if, if something is toxic in an animal, it's more likely to be toxic in people. Absolutely true. However, as we have learned more and more in depth about the mechanisms of toxicity and the drug mechanisms we now appreciate how different animals are even their uh, you know gene sequences are are slightly different enough to make to make the to Make it us unable to predict effect, you know, from animal testing. And the other reason is a lot of the in vivo animal data is in silos within pharmaceutical or consumer products companies, and nobody has access to that. So it's been hidden, if you will. The lack of prediction predictivity of animal testing has has really been been hidden. It was the best we had at the time, but as right. we learn more about the details and mechanisms of human biology, it's uh, quite remarkable how different people are from animals and it makes makes us un, you know realize why, you know, drugs still fail, you know, 30% of the time for toxic safety in people.
1: Well, I mean, I guess we don't know if these other methods are the best available cuz like you said, data science has to be done on them to evaluate that, right?
2: Yes, and actually that's where i come in i've i've been I've spent the last fifteen plus years developing a human in vitro platform using human primary cells. To model different aspects of tissue biology, and we've act- successfully discovered a number of novel mechanisms of toxicity that we have used and, and developed com- as commercial assays, and are helping you know people in in uh, drug discovery select safer molecules. And we've shown predictivity of these assays. So that's where I come in because I have had the experience of once we identify assays and test them and show, do the, do the work to show how well they predict human outcomes, we just can add, do the same thing for uh, many other different platforms.
1: Hmm. All right. So what is, uh, I don't know if it's the word typical is right, but what's an example of uh, your platform, what constitutes it, and you know what, is, what have you tested it on, for example?
2: Yeah, so uh, right now we're working on our beta version of the platform where um, I have a we have a partnership with a Collaborative Drug Discovery, which is a chemical cheminformatics biological database, commercial database, to showcase a collecting various in vitro assays that are relevant to cardiovascular toxicity. And the area we're working on is the um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which is our class of drugs, oncology drugs that are efficacious in oncology, but but cause cardiovascular toxicity. And we pulled together uh, a number of different assays that covered different mechanisms of cardiovascular toxicity. And I think the field hasn't really appreciated how many different mechanisms there were and that these, this particular class of inhibitors actually hits. Some of them are, have different mechanisms of cardiovascular toxicity. This is important because well, if you're the, going to...
1: Yes? right Okay. Let's, let's get some details. So what, what's the yeah. goal of the drugs and what, what do you mean by toxicity? What happens to the heart?
2: So uh, cardiovascular toxicity outcomes in patients would be heart attack, increased heart attack, Um, hypertension, so you get uh, increased blood pressure, or you're at risk for um, thrombosis, stroke, and those sorts of outcomes. And so what we see in the clinical studies with drugs like like trametinib or mechanist, which is a a drug that's used in uh, melanoma, is that there's an increased uh, number of patients who take that drug who have uh, cardiovascular, you know, these events are, the number of events are increased. So
1: when so what are the, to the look, pathways that are commonly thought of now? And, you know, what are the new pathways that it looks like you're figuring out?
2: Yes. So uh, so most people for cardiovascular toxicity, they, they test heart cells. So these are cardiomyocytes and there's some nice new assays using induced pluripotent stem cell derived cardiomyocytes. And they beat, in a dish, so that assay has been used for people have looked to that assay to predict cardiovascular toxicity. Well, it turned out for trametinib is that it wasn't active in that assay at all, but it was active in a different assay that modeled atherosclerosis type of biology. So that where the vasculature is inflamed, and that can also Result in in increased cardiovascular uh, events, for example. And when we looked at a number of these different kinase inhibitors, we found that that some of them were active in the cardiomyocyte assay, that's measuring arrhythmia, mm-hmm. and then others were active in assays that measured uh, thrombosis potential, and still so others, like trimetinib were active. In the assays that that modeled this you know, atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries that, uh, type of biology. And so just in our case study that we're working on now, we could see that this would be very, very helpful for um, our stakeholders to, uh, to be able to look across different assays and understand where they might be predictive of human outcomes and get comfortable with them. So that's the type of the type of, pr- of projects they're doing.
1: Well, how do you know if an assay is predictive or not? If, you know, it still has to go on a path of multiple years to see if, act- you know, in actual people, I don't know what phase it is of a clinical trial, for instance, but where yeah. it's actually used in people. And then you'd have to go yeah, back so- to the assay and say, hmm, it was predicted here, but not in the people.
2: So we're lucky because we're in these assays, we have te- we're testing all approved drugs so or failed drugs. And so you oh, have okay. all of the clinical data from those to show you how predictive your assays are. And uh, that's really the yeah, that's it's challenging because most companies, small companies who are developing some of these assays, they'll only test a few drugs, but you need to test a lot to be able to determine how predictive the assays are. So that's what we're trying to do by integrating the data and supporting all of these Vendors or people developing these assays to run the data, run the run the assays that that are needed to show that they're how predictive they are.
1: Do the uh, failed drug drug makers want you to do this, and the successful or approved drug drug makers not want you to do this for fear that it may unmask problems with their drug?
2: <laughs> they've they've gotten over that. <laughs> they Water's under the bridge, right? And for every company who has a failed drug, who doesn't really want to look at it anymore, other companies are looking for those opportunities. Well, if I could fix that drug, then we've got something. So um, in in this space, it tends to be less competitive than efficacy. Um, so there's a lot more sharing of results among product developers in the safety testing area. So it's a little bit easier <laughs> than uh, than uh, some of some other
1: research areas. So you mentioned I don't know seven, eight different kinds of assays, organoids, you know, other stuff. What, yep. what assay yep. are you? I would I would guess you're focusing on. I know it's condition dependent, I know, but what type of assay are you focusing on and tell me a little bit about how it works:
2: Yes, so I'm interested in integrating lots of assays. The platform that I uh, co-led the development of has sixty plus assays with many other endpoints, so I'm used to looking at a lot of different assays for different types of biology um, and I'm interested in uh, any uh, in particular assays that have been um, scaled and uh, are shown to be reproducible. So is uh, anything that, uh, that uh, you know, and has a good, a reasonable uh, 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 scientific uh, rationale uh, uh, and that are available, especially commercially so that you can uh, run the reference drugs and uh, generate a large data set from those. I think that's mm. one of the actually more challenging aspects. There are a lot of academic groups who will run an assay, but it's not particularly reproducible. So, you know, you can't run, make a large database because it's not uh, reproducible from day to day or, or week to week or, or whatever. So just by focusing on those that have, have gone undergone some you know, optimization and effort to to get reproducibility. It's a reasonable number of assays, and you know, we're we're about the data anyway. So the more data, the better.
1: Well, I would still think that uh, you know, for instance, organoids. Uh, maybe yeah. a heart organoid is well understood and pretty easy to make, but a kidney one is like still impossible to make. So I would think you'd have to focus on you know maybe a cell type that works to make eight different kinds of assays for it so then you could really get a robust sampling then you could test you know a hundred different drugs that affect just the heart you're just using heart cells and heart cells are great because you could do seven different kinds of assays and they're repeatable and all that stuff so I i would think you would have identified that right
2: yeah so the challenge is is the more complicated the system so the like organs on a chip the fewer the the lower throughput there is, and so it's very difficult to get enough data to even be confident that your system is uh showing the biology the biology you expect so there's a there's a challenge with uh, very complicated systems, and we've had more success where we have tried to just model a particular aspect, maybe you know a few different cell types or you know uh, uh, not you know not the entire organ <laughs> mm-hmm. but a particular you know set of uh, uh, biological process that's um that's that uh you know captures an aspect and then by combining these together that's where you can cover more of the biology
1: so this is kind of like the example you gave you know the heart maybe you can't reproduce a whole heart but you can re- exactly. reproduce part of it that's responsible for the beating aspect only and then you look for arrhythmias, uh, you know, from a hundred something different drugs. And then maybe you exactly. add in another another aspect of the heart, you know.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And we've been had success in doing that, so that has certainly uh, inspired me to just expand the the data that we can put together and try to under connect the 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 knowledge. That we've learned, gained by by testing all of these uh, drugs and experimental compounds in these assay systems, we've learned a lot about how biology works. So it's been very rich and uh, and very exciting. And the, the idea behind what we're doing is to actually make this reference data, validation data, completely open and transparent, because um, we need that to have our stakeholders uh, act. Be able to have access to the validation data and be comfortable in in uh, these assays that uh, for them to to bring these on board.
1: So you're not having to give away some of your secret organoid sauce to tell me about this, right?
2: Yeah. So it's it's about. But what people really want is they just want to know. They want to see that it works. They're more interested right. in that it works. Uh, the secret sauce remains with the different vendors who are running the assays mm. or or, um you know, developing new ones,
1: so what kinds of things have you learned about biology that uh, most folks may not know about or you didn't know about before you started doing this stuff?
2: <laughs> um, most people don't appreciate the hierarchical nature of biology, so you know you've got a molecule, you know DNA or a protein or a drug that might interact with 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 a protein inside a cell. Uh, that protein actually has interacts with other partners, right? Complexes pathways and then pathways interact with each other inside cells cells interact with each other in tissues, tissues make up organs and there's all this communication between organs uh, until, you know, you've got the whole system, the whole, the whole, uh, the whole organism. And Mm. for us, information that is closer to the clinical outcome right like a biomarker something that's close to the clinical outcome is more valuable than a gene sequence or knowing whether or not there's a gene expression particular gene expression pattern genes are i think of them as 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 you know the lowest level it's like the the alphabet Right. And you can't build your understanding of a system by looking at the letters <laughs> because there is all of this modularity and hierarchical organization that you cannot tell from knowing and uh, gene gene sequences or gene expression. So um, I think well, that's I've been a problem because
1: because you have to be reductionist in order to be able to do this. But you can't be reductionist because everything is interconnected and has a hierarchy. So what do you do?
2: So that's where these, these systems come in, these in vitro systems, because we're using whole cells, right? We haven't taken them apart and isolated the proteins to do biochemical assays. Um and we we then test things in in, uh, in uh, co culture so you can start to put cells together and they when they when you get the higher levels of organization, they just do different things than the individual cells do. And so just trying to do that helps you learn more about how the system is organized,
1: so uh, what's a, I think that's that, an example yeah. of that Does it sound like juicy, really interesting stuff?
2: yeah, well, we kind of know this from gene knockouts, right? You take the whole organism and then you knock out the uh, gene, so you've got every the whole system intact working, and that does that does help you figure out. Uh, uh, what things do um let's see some of the things that that uh, we've appreciated is how important tissue context is right so a fibroblast in a lung <laughs> is just very different than a fibroblast uh, that's that's in the heart, and the reason is is that when you put cells together, they talk to each other and they they create their own sort of environment that is not predicted by the individual cell types so we we can look at clinical data from a you know from a clinical trial look at the tissues to see what's going on in in human clinical and then you go back to the in vitro systems you just keep comparing what you see in vitro with what we know is happening in a tissue and improving our models, you know, slowly and surely.
1: So, do you see uh, what you consider to be emergent properties oh, when you get enough cells emergent. together or different cell types?
2: Emergent properties, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the other thing is appreciation for um, how drug target has can have a biology biological function. Many biological functions that are quite different, in, depending on the tissue and, and setting, and you know, just completely remarkable. We well, keep think,
1: uh, you keep teasing me with these uh, these ideas, or what are you know any specifics you can give that won't reveal things you don't want to
0: reveal? Yeah, you know, what's sure. Like, like
2: uh, uh, yeah. So yeah. so a, a, a few years ago, we were working with the Environmental Protection Agency to characterize environmental. Chemicals across these biological assay systems, and we noticed in in these human systems that they were uh, you know responsive to polycyclic aryl uh, hydrocarbons, so these are pollution right mm-hmm. <laughs> the stuff in pollution. And um, we noticed that oh it had particular activity, and the EPA was all very concerned with you know pollution related cardiovascular effects of, of these uh, these molecules. and what we observed was that, that these molecules were also quite active in immune cells and modulating the immune cells, so immunomodulation not Immunosuppression, but modulating, mm-hmm. and it turns out that uh, we were able to find a biology that is now used uh, has is now being developed, or skin drugs, so they decided they exploited this particular biology that that we discovered through <laughs> looking at environmental pollutants. <laughs> Mm-hmm. To become something positive, so and I think that's a that's okay. a really good take take home message as well is that is that you can find a drug or a chemical that has a particular activity in biology that it might be beneficial or it might be detrimental depending on what is the indication and you know what is the status of the of the of the of the patient. So
1: all right, so um, I got a, a two part question for you since you're you know you're like eyes deep in complexity. Uh, let's see. So is it true that um, the percentage of drugs that are approved appears to be declining? And does that seem to, you know, that and your knowledge of biological systems being so complex, integrated, communicative and have emergent properties and et cetera, those two combined, does that tell you that looking for a drug to fix a particular biological problem is a, a fool's game and it needs to be more sophisticated? Or as long as we have better tools to figure this stuff out we'll be fine
2: i think once these tools become more widely adopted we'll see a big upswing in in a, a approved drugs the you know these haven't been around that long and actually last year we had pretty good number of approved drugs although most of them were for very small niche applications but mm-hmm. i think that is pointing the way that that's going to be moving into personalized medicine for sure and it's tailoring the drug to the patient to the the necessary biology so the because i think what we're learning from from this work in terms of the the complexity of disease biology or the variety of disease biology that our classification of diseases is is a little too is not refined enough. And I think as we combine what we're learning from all of the health uh, technologies in terms of, you know, individual variation and particular, you know, type classifications of of patients, we'll be able to start matching drugs and drug combinations with the right patient. I think we're at a lull, but it's it's, it's going to, I think it's going to explode.
1: I guess to throw in even more complexity you know, certain tissues are adjacent to or, you know, uh, intermingled with the microbiome. Yes. What do you do in those situations? You, can you create oh, assays I've, with the microbiome or without it? Because I would think that would affect function tremendously.
2: Absolutely. We've actually explored a lot of microbiome-derived products, and they're certainly very bioactive. And it makes so much sense that they can control. I think we don't know a lot still. The diversity and the consequent, because they're very complicated, right? There's all these species, there's what they make, there's when they are different combinations will be different. And I think, and once we start to get the data from, you know, comparing microbiomes across patients and really analyzing that information, which we're just at the beginning of, I think we don't have a lot of actual information yet. Uh, you know, there's certainly some tantalizing reports here and there, but, um, uh, I, I, I think that is a, uh, an area that is going to be super important because we're a product of our environment and one of our biggest environmental <laughs> perturbations is our microbiome because it's sitting in oh. our gut <laughs> and talking to us all the time. Oh. And I like to think wow. of that, uh, you know, all of, we're responding to everything in our environment, right? Food, the air, The people were around, dog pets, so we're Mm -hmm. we are exposed to all of these inputs all of the time.
1: That's why I'm surprised that you know drugs work because it seems like I don't know. Just like my personal (laughs) theory is that it seems like I guess we were lucky, for instance, with antibiotics. They were like the low hanging fruit, and perhaps they're all gone or there's very few left. And you know, what's the next complication we'll have to do with the next sophistication in order to help people with disease? It involves so many things. that's like I don't know how your brain doesn't melt down trying to figure out what to do and what complexity to have and not have. It's hard.
2: Yeah, and I think we're we have a problem with legacy thinking. So, Alzheimer's, right? The researchers are so wed to these old theories and they keep running the same experiments and trying to prove the same, you know, mechanisms and you know they have not worked. And I think it it's very challenging to support and promote really novel thinking and novel approaches and I can tell you from my experience, I had this idea to use human primary cells in vitro to try to model tissue biology, you know, this was 20 years ago and I thought for sure and we started putting together some assays, and they were really um, helping us learn a lot. And I thought, oh, everybody's going to do this, <laughs> and it turns out that nobody is. They don't. It's interesting, you know, why that? Do, why don't innovations happen or move forward? And that's that's a very interesting. Um, it's psychology, it's legacy, um, and it's overcoming the a, a lot of these barriers. And it's very hard to get novel things published. I'm not going to name any names, but I had a very hard mm. time getting a paper published because in the field, it was believed that this particular protein could not be made by a cell type that we had identified as being produced by. And mm. couldn't get the paper
1: published.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, it's it always comes down to people. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I guess when you have, uh, you know, opinion getting in the way of science and fact yeah. and evidence, you we know, got a big problem. It's going to make it even harder to figure out treatment. Yeah, you know?
2: yeah and I think the technologies mm. are getting so complicated that not enough people are experts. And this is a, a particular problem in data science, in, in the life sciences, because there aren't a lot of experts. Um, we're not training our Uh, you know, biological researchers in in really good data science. And so we're missing out on on a lot of good work because we just don't have the people to analyze the data. Hmm.
1: Well, uh, you know, before we wrap up, May, any any other uh, case studies that, you know, you really liked or you thought were fascinating or emergent properties that just like, you know, you were shocked at? Yeah, that's a great
2: question. Um, I'm shocked all the time. <laughs> One thing that I we're love about this moments. work what is, yeah, is that we learn new things all the time. I was particularly surprised that antibiotics were very active on normal human cells. And so some of these work not only because they attack the um, bacteria or, you know, Target organism, but because they actually recruit human biology. Uh, another interesting thing is we did some work with, with material science. And these were implant devices, implant. And the, the, they were concerned about a reaction. Uh, in, uh, uh, in clinical trials to some of the materials, but not others. And so we were trying to find out what's what's wrong with this material that it causes this reaction. And it turned out that it was actually the comparative materials were interacting with the human biology and suppressing. <laughs> so it was the control samples that were active and, you know, how they... Recruited this the cell responses, you know, was was just very interesting. So that's one interesting and and exciting application of these in vitro technologies is you can test all kinds of things in them, and extracts and natural products and and as well as you know drugs, you know, any any uh, you know consumer use products.
1: Is there a, is there not a need then for an IRB since you're not you know. Um, working with a living creature but just a living tissue
2: no what you do want to do is to make sure that the the cells if they're taken from you know human donors that they're consented appropriately so that's something that you need to pay pay attention to but the, the with new new approaches for growing cells and expanding them um it's pretty easy to get enough cells these days and of course through IPS technologies the stem cell technologies they're they're you know manufacturing buckets of cells so that's not a hmm. not so much of an issue
1: hmm. interesting okay um, so well what's ahead for the next six months to a year and then maybe you know three to five years for your work what are you working on right now <laughs> that you're you know, most excited about what's coming
2: Okay, so you know, right now for Alta Predict, we're we're focused on getting our uh, the portal up and and some data visualizations uh, uh, in place, and so that people can explore the data. And our group of collaborators can help us uh, improve that and 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 tailor that. Uh, we have uh, many different organizations have offered to donate data. And expertise. Very interested in this. <laughs> Obviously, I'm I'm part of some groups that, um, uh, you know, that are their goal is to promote the adoption of these methods. So these are American Society of Computational and Cellular Toxicity, ASCCT, Society of Tox- uh, Toxicology uh, groups, uh, governmental organizations here in the U.S. Uh, for sure, the EPA, NTP, NIEHS, FDA. And there are a lot of NGOs that are, that are very involved in, in helping us do this. Uh, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, the Humane Society, uh, their Biomed 21 program. So there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of groups who are supporting and, and helping us uh, put this together. So that's, what we're going to be working on in the next you know six to twelve months is is getting it going, building the community um getting feedback from from you know research scientists to see how do you how the data visualizations uh, how useful they are, and then helping uh, you know different uh, develop assay developers um, get access to researchers who will um, uh, visibility to their platforms and help them uh, commercialize them so that's uh, that's mm-hmm. what we're doing there for sure okay. um, yeah
1: so what's the best way for uh, you know for listeners to maybe get in touch questions collaboration that kind of thing what, what are some resources for them
2: yeah so, um, so we actually we have a website um, altopredict.com and
1: uh, occasionally call, uh
2: we have a Twitter account so either there <laughs> on twitter or at our website they can uh they can stop in there'll be certainly a lot more um uh, news coming coming in the next few months through the website but that's uh, that's probably the best place
1: okay well very good well i appreciate you coming and uh it sounds like you have ten thousand lifetimes of work ahead of you but it's uh, exciting yeah. stuff <laughs> it's all fun
0: very good